Alrighty, so I took this off of like my iPhone 4 phone, so sorry, it's like a natural filter, um, which is called Pixels. And um, this, this is my sermon now, by the way, I'm going into sermon mode. Okay, so, <laughs> random pictures. Okay, so uh, I love mountain biking, I'm, I'm really avid about it. But I remember when I first picked up biking, I had no idea how to do jumps, right? So, but being a stupid guy, I put on my helmet, my full face like mask and my, my gear, and I just thought I was invincible. And one day I'm hanging out with Mark Shea, he's a really great biker and, and um, had been doing it for a long time. And he takes this five foot jump on Shabaran Park and he just lands his bike and keeps going. He does it 10 more times. I'm like, he did it 10 times, I could do it once. Logic. And um, the next day I went to the park by myself without my gear, because that makes sense. And then uh, I'm staring down this jump and I was like, I can do this, right? And how you're supposed to go off of a jump is that you kind of get enough speed, you load your bike, you put your weight into your bike, you come off the lip and you kind of lift off and you make sure your wheels land parallel to the ground. Um, and then they keep spinning, you, you know, you don't, and that's it. And you just kind of ride with it. So I can kind of do that now. But at the time, I went off the, the thing and I was like, I had no idea what I was doing. All I knew is I was really scared and that me and Mark are different people. And so, like, instead of doing everything correctly, I did everything pos wrong that you can do wrong. I, like, sat in the seat. I hit the brakes because, obviously, the brakes will work in midair. You know, like, I can stop in midair if I hit the brakes. And when I landed, the wheels are locked. I'm off balance. I'm tilted. And basically, I just get dumped onto the sidewalk. Um, actually, it's not a sidewalk. It's a little strip of pavement surrounded by soft grass. I hit the pavement, right? <laughs> Uh, I woke up later, this kind little Mexican kid is giving me like towel to wipe down my face, you know, and he looks really concerned, and then I like kind of walk my bike home, and then I go to the urgent care. Um, <laughs> the rest of the next three days I had to preach, and it's kind of like watching a video with bad internet, you know, they just stop in place. You know, like that? So that was my sermon. And it was like a loading a bad video. Now, all that to say is it's dangerous to do things out of order, right? I did everything, everything I was supposed to do, I did in the wrong order or I did the opposite of. And I feel like in our Christian faith, when we go out of process or out of order, we can do damage to our Christian faith. We can do damage in our walk with God. I remember specifically being like sixth or seventh grade, and there was like this holiness movement going on in my church where everyone's trying to be holy. And so I told, I, I made this like vow to God that I was going to try to be perfect, right? And I was like, I was like serious about it. And I, I was a serious Christian at the time. And so I was like, every thought I would meticulously like uh, examine every word out of my mouth, every action. And because I was trying to jump this process, there was just this weight um, on my soul. I felt chained. And I didn't enjoy my faith. And, and like four minutes later, no, I'm just kidding, about a day later, which is like a long time to be perfect, my mom, you know, I was like sharing this with my mom, and she's like, just like, don't take it that serious, you know? Don't be so serious. 
And I wonder when we try to jump the process how it can damage um, our relationship with God. It could damage our character. It could bring us into hypocrisy. So Paul, in this really brief prayer, um, he lays out a process of spiritual formation. I, I think the, the parts of Scripture that I, I really like, I love, is when Paul just kind of succinctly, in a few sentences, lays out a process, kind of like in James chapter 1, where he goes from trials and tribulations into this, this extended process where you end with being complete, not lacking anything. It's, it's this beautiful laying out of a framework. And that's what he does here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 to 11. So the first part of Philippians, he's giving an introduction. He's kind of laying out the thesis of his letter. He moves into a prayer, and then he goes and fleshes out his thesis. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 to 11 says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more, in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. So the bolded words, which you could barely tell are bolded, it just hurts your eyes a little bit more, there are the different pieces of the process, all right? So if I were to just kind of pull them out for you, this is where I see Paul kind of taking us from one stage of the process to another. I think it's pretty linear, except that knowledge and depth of insight precedes love, right? So your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So as we have knowledge and insight into who God is, we, our love abounds, and then out of that, we're able, we're, we have the ability to discern for the purpose so that we may be pure and blameless, have fruit of righteousness, and ultimately it's to bring God glory and praise. So here's kind of, if flushed out um, on my graphic, infographic, um, and I just kind of want to stop and give every section a little bit of time but more so, what I'm also interested in is how these sections relate to each other, the arrow, if you will. All right? So that's kind of the 10-point the sermon we'll be going through today. Six words, four arrows. Good times. Um, as we think about knowledge and depth of insight, I think about how knowledge in the Bible is so different than knowing today. So when we think about knowledge now, it's kind of like, um, cramming for a test, as you all did about a month ago, and, and being able to regurgitate, vomit information on a piece of paper and try to get an A. But in the Bible, knowledge is attached to experience. And when you think about knowledge in general, there's three major categories of how we know. Uh, there's the testimony of others, like the news, CNN, your textbooks, your mom. There's logic, like A plus B equals C. And then the third category is experience. And I would say that that might be, probably is the most powerful way that we know, the things that we witness firsthand. And that's the kind of knowledge that the Bible is talking about. This word knowledge first appears in um, Genesis. And the way it, says, it talks about knowledge is that Adam knew his wife, then they had babies, all right? 
So that's a kind of intimate first-hand knowledge, right? You don't have babies unless, if it's an intellectual ascent, you have babies if there's an experience behind it. And that's the kind of knowledge that Paul is wanting us to have. I think that knowledge, though, if it's disconnected from love, um, actually, first, let me talk about knowledge. I think knowledge is important because when we don't know God, we can start to fabricate who he is. And we do this with the people we like, right? If you, if you look at a dating profile, and there's all these blanks to this person's character, to his preferences, but we're just going to fill it in with what we like too and assume that they like it as well because that's how we fall in love. And I think that we can fall in love with God that way as well, but it's, it's a little dangerous because if we don't know him well and we just start assuming things about him, we can be worshiping a God that we created. We can, worship, we can call him Jesus, but he's really distorted. He's really an idol that reflects our own values versus knowing who God actually is. So we need to know God in a deep and intimate way. We need to spend time in his word. And we need to wrestle with the parts of him that we dislike or the parts of him that aren't like us. So how are we delving into our knowledge of God in a way that we wrestle with the reality of who he is and we fall in love with that? But I feel like maybe our greater challenge is not knowing God uh, well because we have so many resources. You know, knowledge has not been a challenge in our generation. I don't argue with my friends anymore. I tell them to shut up, and then we Google, we Google the answer, right? It's like, why are we entering into a Socratic debate when I can ask Siri, okay? And so we know so much. Every question we have, we can Google or ask Siri. But maybe the greatest gap for spiritual formation is this gap between knowledge and love. And it's so dangerous to know God without the purpose of loving him. I think that, that knowledge deprived of love leads us to becoming prideful and arrogant. It leads us to assume we are mature in our faith because we know something instead of going through this whole process. It, it makes us judgmental about other people. We don't have the humility of love, and, and all we have is the boastfulness, the puffness of knowledge. And lastly, I think it can be tormenting to know without relationship, that there is this dissonance between everything that God is, everything we know about Scripture, and either we fake it and we pretend we are that great, or we start to become depressed and upset and angry because we see the reality of who we are and how far away our knowledge is. Maybe that's my greatest challenge as a preacher, is to give these sermons, and if I'm not in relationship with God, I just, I don't want to preach, like, because I just feel like, man, how can I ever live up to any of my messages? But it's in being in love with God that I can approach Scripture and know it's okay that He accepts me that it's about relationship. If we don't, the, the less we know about God, the less we can love him. 
The more we know about God, it gives us the capacity to love him, but it doesn't necessarily mean we do. And if I were to look at this whole process, I would say that's the bottleneck. That out of love, it's pretty, it's pretty motivating to flow the other three steps or pieces, but knowledge and love can tend to be disconnected until we're experiencing it, until we're motivated by love to know. So when we open up our scripture, when we open up the Bible, when we come to church on Sunday, is it to love God? Or is it just to learn something? When we pray, when we do our disciplines, is it because we want to love God? You know, I, there's this professor that I really admire. His name, his name is um, Robert Sosi. He passed away recently. And um, I took several classes with him in seminary. And if you're in seminary, you're, you're with a bunch of people who really love scripture and knows a lot of stuff, but they're also really young and, you know, all the things I talked about. And so one of the guys who was talking to, he asked a question in class, and, you know, we're feeling good about ourselves. Um, we're taking systematic theology. We know uh, Greek and Hebrew, and, or they do. And he's, like, kind of saying, hey, like, um, shouldn't everyone know the Bible like we do? You know, with this kind of arrogance. And I think the whole classroom was, like, slightly nodding. Like, we're the elite Christians because we know so much. And Robert um, just kind of talked about this woman at church that he knew, who was a little older and, um, and illiterate. But every Sunday, he would, she would come to church, and she would learn about Jesus, and the scriptures would be unfolded to her. And she would take what she knew, and she would hold it closely. She would, like, cling on to it. And for the rest of the week, she's asking, how do I love God from what I know? And how can it form my life? And I just don't know if I treat knowing God like that. He's, and he said, you know, I'd rather have her listening to this lecture. Um, and, you know, I was thinking than any of you guys, but he didn't say that because he's a kind, gentle man, right? As we think about knowledge, being connected to love, how Paul exhorts us to abound in love, to have knowledge allow our love to grow. And when I think about love, it's either growing or it's dying. I would, I, when I look at my marriage with Nina, there's me, there's her, and there's our relationship. And I would say that it has a life of its own. You know, over the last year, me and Nina, we saw about four of our, our friends, people we knew, get divorces. Three, two, one of them had been married for 35 years, and I just assumed that they would go another year. But he walked away, and, and that's when I thought about love and, and my relationship with Nina as this thing that's kind of outside of us. And either it's nurturing, either we're watering it, either it's precious, and it's growing, and it bears fruit, or it's just kind of fading away. And I wonder, when we think about our love for God, is it growing? Is it something that is abounding? Is there a life to it? Because if there's not, then it's just slowly going to die. I wonder if our love for God is at the forefront of, of our lives, if it's something that drives the rest of us. 
Because I would say the rest of the process is driven by love. Love is the motivating, undergirding foundation for how we discern what is best, for how we live life, a life that is pure and blameless. And when you take love out of the equation, everything else becomes legalistic. Is love why we're sitting here today? Is love why we are Christians? Is love why we enter into fellowship? Is loving God why we're doing the rest of our lives? When we know God and love God, we're able to discern what is best. And if I could give you a gift, uh, and I've been thinking about how to do this. We'll probably sit down and try, try it one day. I would love to just kind of like listen to pop music, listen, watch some TV shows, read some books, and, and, and deconstruct their message. What are they trying to sell you? What are they saying is best? This lifestyle, these values, obtaining these things. And do we believe it? When you love God and know him, you get to do what's best and, and believe that it's best. Because I think a lot of Christianity is like, oh man, I'm giving up this really awesome thing for God, which is like a lesser good, and, I, and there's a sense of sacrifice and, and giving up. But if we're able to discern what's best, we're saying that this is actually the best and everything else is subpar and therefore I'm choosing this. Let me give you two examples of looking into systems of this world and seeing fractures, right? So like, I was watching this billionaire get interviewed and who doesn't want to be a billionaire? So freaking bad, right? And, um, and he's being interviewed and I start to see some of like this, the, the apex, the hero of wealth, um, one of the top two most wealthy men in the world. And, but it's this, inter, in, this intimate interview, and I, saw, I see some of the fractures. He talked about generosity after he dies, right? He wants to give all of his money away. And the interviewer is like, why is it after you die? Why aren't you giving away like your millions and billions now? And, and he talked about how he's afraid of inflation and how money loses value and how, you know, he's, he has to maintain his lifestyle. And what I heard is that, the, that he's, more of, he's more insecure about money than I am. This billionaire is more afraid of poverty than I, than I am. And he's clinging on to it. And everything we think money gives us I, I don't think it really gave him. I was listening to this book review, uh, Girl Next Door. It's about a, a girl, a woman who lives in the Playboy Mansion, and just every, like, I love kind of pulling the curtain, and she just talked about how um, they had a curfew, right? Like, they have to be home at a certain amount of time. They have to reside there for most of their life. They get an allowance and how there's a fear to leave because that's what they've built their money on. And then an, an even greater fear to age because then all their value is lost. And she talked about his most, Hugh's most preferred girl out of their 10 that lived there and how she, how he like 
uh, wants these women, right, who are, like, one day she's a, he wants a movie star, and then a couple months later, he wants, he's, like, in love with this athlete or infatuated with her. And this, this girl who's his top girlfriend, she's always trying to become the woman that he likes at that moment, you know? And, and as this, this girl is writing her memoir, she's just talking about how that's why he's her favorite. And I, I think about her life and how maybe she doesn't even know who she is anymore. Maybe she's lost herself in this man's world and, and afraid to be tossed aside. And so we, I wonder if we really believe that God has our best. And I wonder if we've been able to see fractures in all these other systems. I wonder if we're convinced that storing up our treasure in heaven where moss and rust does not destroy and thieves do not dis- steal, I wonder if we really believe that that's what's best. Or if we're just doing it because we're Christian, but what's really best is being a billionaire. I wonder if we really believe what's best is, is saving ourselves from marriage, is protecting our purity. Because we see, I get messages every day on the radio and on TV that that's not worth it. It's better to be Hugh Hefner. It's better to be this, this girl that everyone desires. And, and God is saying, man, if you know who I am, and if you're in a loving relationship with me, and whatever we love most, we center ourselves around, and we do for that love, then the best starts to, starts to rise from everything else. The best person to date because he allows me to love God more. The best job to take, not just because of the benefits, but because I see goodness being built in community. The best comes out of love. And I, don't, I, I think when we're wrestling with what is best, we're also wrestling with what we love the most. Then he says, when you know what's best, you're able to be pure and blameless, which I would kind of, if there's a spectrum, I would put that on one end of the spectrum, and then to have fruit of righteousness, which is on the other end of the spectrum. I feel like in, the, in my um, experience of the Christian faith, we talk about being pure a lot. We talk about not sinning a lot. We talk about what you shouldn't do. But, but Paul exhorts us for both. He says, yeah, walk away from sin, but walk into righteousness. And so what is the spectrum? I, I see it as Paul saying, hey, when you know what it's, is best, you will know to, instead of lying, to tell the truth. Instead of being greedy and hoarding, that what's best is being generous and finding richness there. That instead of holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness, that you forgive and you're righteous. You know, it's being pure and blameless, that's not, the, that's not the end game, right? Like this microphone is pure and blameless. It's never hurt anyone. And, and I think sometimes we want to sterilize and make our Christian faith docile. Go live in a basement, listen to the fish, Close your ears when it talks about plastic surgeries, you know? And then, and then you're a great Christian, right? Memorize verses. But when I look at Jesus, he wasn't just pure and innocent. 
he, when everyone else didn't want to touch the leper, he did and healed them. When no one wanted to go to Zacchaeus, the gangster's house, he went in and, and brought him into restoration. When no one would sit by the prostitute um, in Samaria, he shared well water with her and gave her living water. What is the fruit of your faith, of your love for God? And at the same time, we, sh- we shouldn't be doing those things or not doing those things unless we're in love with God and out of love that we're convinced that these actions are the best. And I think that most of the time, you know, I could just kind of jump to the stage. Like, hello, I'm going I'm to be a good Christian like my other friend is. I'm going to be the pastor that the other pastor is. And, and then... Uh, and then we have this hypocrisy that starts to brood, right? There's a dissonance between what I really love, what I really think is best, and how I'm acting. And soon we become disillusioned to the Christian faith. Soon the Christian faith just becomes a set of do's and don'ts. But when we abstain from sin, is it out of love? Does it make sense relationally, or is it just a rule? And I would, I would suggest that if it's just a rule, make sure you go through this process and get there instead of just doing something that someone told you was best, but you're not, you're not convinced of it. You know, last thing, fruit of... Uh, what time is it? Time? Okay, next point. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I think about why people become Christians, why we're Christians, why we're sitting in this room, and is it this? Because it's kind of a waste of your time and life if you go through this whole process and you're like, wait, I thought it would be comfortable. I thought it was about my personal happiness and my, the criterion in which I've um, constructed happiness. I thought it was about my wealth or my family just being okay. Paul is saying that at the end of the day, if, if it's not for his glory, if it's not to praise God, we're, we're in it. We're, we're going through all of this and we're, ended, we're ending up with a goal we never wanted. At the end of the day, is, is that your heart's desire? If it's not, then... What you know, like I don't know. I don't know if, if you should be doing this thing. This is this is it. This is what God offers us as Christians to worship and praise Him, to find our satisfaction in Him, and and that's what heaven's like too. So we're not just saying this is the end of our spiritual journey on earth. This is the end of eternity to worship and praise God. And I also want to say that when we're doing this musical worship thing, I would actually take it out of praise God from, on this bottom line. I would say that this here would be like loving God and engaging with Him and being relation, relational with Him. When we praise God in this process that Paul is laying out, it's much more than singing. It's much more than lifting our hands. It's much more than feeling something. It's knowing him. It's loving him. It's seeing life 
inspired by him, with his framework. It's being like him. The things that he sees as evil, we see as evil, and the things that he does in righteousness, we do in righteousness, and that is worship when we're imitating God. You know, I, I wonder... I wonder what are the bottlenecks that we're experiencing. Is, is there a place in your process that you're just all about this, but you're not transitioning? You know, you're all about knowing God, but that's our bottleneck, and, and we just want to know more, but it hasn't become love, and it hasn't done anything. Or our bottleneck is being really in love with the Lord, but there's no lifestyle that comes about it. And, and we all have them. I, I honestly, I feel like I, I have bottlenecks in every step. But I think this is the challenge of the Christian faith. This is honestly the challenge of preaching. I could sit here and read a commentary to you and give you all the historical background, and you would know a lot of things, but I don't know if, if I'm doing you justice if I'm not taking you into love and into a vision of another life, another version of best, if I'm not helping you worship God and how you live. And, and that's, the, that's what the Holy Spirit does, right? That's what Jesus does for us. He doesn't just leave us with knowledge. It says that the sword of, it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that the two come together to give us knowledge, to inspire us to love, to change the way we see life and live life so that God is worshipped. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'd love for us to just kind of look at some of these questions, um, take communion together, and be introspective and be honest and say, God, what are, what are things that I'm jumping to that I really don't have the foundation of love that's inspiring me? What are bottlenecks that I'm stuck in? And mostly, would you walk with me this week so that I can come to a place where my whole life is giving glory and praise to you? God, we love you, and I think as Christians, we just can have our eyes on the other parts and skip around and get frustrated, but I pray that this week we would kind of filter through everything we know about you. We, some of us know a lot about you, but I pray, Lord, that in our knowledge you would help us walk through this, that it would connect our hearts and we would love and all of that, Lord. Um, I pray that you would help us to think about things that we don't value in this process, that we're all about this one thing and, and we're content there, and, and yet you're saying that true praise and glory is, is all of it, is walking through all of it, and I pray that you would help us to do that, Lord. Um, yeah, so Holy Spirit, I just kind of surrender, like this sermon to you because it's like a lifelong journey and um, only you can 
Only you can give us the power and motivation, and only you are in every moment and thought. And so, Holy Spirit, would, would you just be with all my brothers and sisters? Help them to see, help them to fall in love, help them to be inspired, help them to get to true praise. We love you so much, in Jesus' name.